Wonderful to see old friends and new friends uh, for this second um, of three parts of our, of our exploration into the Mahabharata. Um, I usually try to start these uh, weekly gatherings by contextualizing them somewhat. Um, for the past eight years, there have been weekly get-togethers like this around the Bhagavad Gita, up until recently at Jiva Mukti Yoga, up on Broadway and uh, 13th Street. And uh, a couple of months back, we moved the gatherings to Wednesdays here at the Bhakti Center. Um, hello to everybody out there in podcast land. Um, by, uh, there's someone who's been uh, tracking this. Uh, there's somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people who listen to these discussions on uh, iTunes, which is very encouraging. So nobody knows what's happening in this room, but they're listening in. Um, and the idea is to penetrate the teachings of Bhagavad Gita in a way that will surface their relevance for the world that we know and the lives that we live. Everything good? Yeah, is, does that, does your quote Yes. Is your no, we're set. Okay. We're good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, these teachings are very old, thousands and thousands of years. If you go from within the tradition, the calculation from within the texts themselves, we're talking hundreds of thousands of years. So even if you go by an academic assessment and look at this in terms of three, four, five thousand years, still, that's a very long time ago. How does the value... Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's see some more old friends here from Jiva Mukti. It's great. How, do the, 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 how does the meaning and value and essence of these teachings, which were codified thousands of years ago, translate today. Are the words the same? Do those words have the same meaning? Um, what are the values that inform the language, the stories, the culture of these ancient teachings? Are they anachronisms? Is it no longer relevant from something so long ago? How do we know that what we're studying has agency in the world today. One of the things that I thought about for, for today's uh, discussion, and we're going to do as we did last week, we'll kind of summarize the story, then we'll look at a clip from the Peter Brook uh, film of Mahabharata. Um, one of the things that I thought about going over with you today, I, I love the um, New York Review of Books, and I'm a member of the Authors Guild. And I'll often get ideas from either reviews of books or things that appear about writers or from writers. And in this month's issue of the Authors Guild uh, newsletter, writers were talking about the writing process. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was quoted in this one column uh, who said about writing Treasure Island, how surprised he was by the process. Is it's awfully fun 
It says, boy, writing boys' stories. You just indulge the pleasure of your heart, that's all. So he had great fun writing Treasure Island. E.B. White, of Stuart Little fame, wrote in the Paris Review that delay is natural to a writer. He's like a surfer. He bides his time, waits for the perfect wage in which to ride in. So there's a kind of an anticipation of inspiration that's part of the writing process. There's a lot of self-recrimination in writing. Um, Alan First, I don't know if you any of you are fans of spy novels, but Alan First has 20-odd books out there. He said, plenty of groans, oaths, and imprecations aimed at myself for being dumb or writing badly. He said, most of my first drafts are really, really awful. And somebody once said to me that being a writer means never liking anything you do ever again. That's quite true. Uh, Ward Just, who has 18 novels, wrote that writing is a game of patience. We were talking about this earlier. You sit around for hours and write a sentence. Then in a few more hours, you write a second sentence. Then at the end of the day, you erase all the adverbs. Finally, you have a clean piece of paper, and two and a half years later, you have a novel. And then you start all over again, and that's a writer's life. Uh, does anyone know Neil Gaiman, the fantasy author? Um, Ender's Game, some of his things. He said, I have no idea what parts of my brain I use to do what I do. Mostly the creative process is really fast. When it happens, I've got a pretty good idea of what something is. I'm like someone driving in the dark. I know if I keep going down this road, I'll get to New York. But what happens along the way, I have no idea. So a, a lot of that is... Um, I think fairly standard. You'll, you'll hear writers talking about the muse, the inspiration, um, waiting for something to happen. Very often writers will also talk about how the characters they write about develop a life of their own. And at a certain point, you wait for them to tell you what to write next. And you're, now you're channeling a life. Okay, well... What about sacred texts? What about sacred writing? There's a lot of channeling that goes on there as well. There's a lot of waiting for inspiration there as well. Um, in the case of Mahabharata, we can look at the Mahabharata, which is the larger housing around the Bhagavad Gita, uh, and view it on different levels. We can look at it as a piece of historic writing. We can look at it as a sacred scripture. We can look at it as an action-adventure, uh, epic story. We can look at it as a work of transcendence that connects us with God through the morals and lessons of this great story. Um, there are certain themes in the, Bhagav in the Mahabharata that surface that seem timeless. So briefly, what we talked about last week was how Vyasa, who was credited with having compiled all of the Vedic wisdom in, write, in written form for the first time, he codified what was an oral tradition, foresaw that in the future the people of you know, New York in the 21st century wouldn't really have a lot of philosophical capacity. They'd need some action-adventure to keep them engaged. So he wrote what is sometimes called the Fifth Veda. There are four philosophical Vedas, and then the Mahabharata, which is this epic story, one of two epics, the Itihasas or epics of India, 
the other being Ramayana, the story of Lord Rama, uh, which was the background of the Star Wars films. And sometime in the new year, we'll do a session on Ramayana, and I'll do for you with that epic what we did last week, where we see the entire story in PowerPoint, 100,000 verses in 18 minutes, which is pretty good. Um, Some of the themes that we come across in Mahabharata are how power corrupts. That's a universal theme. That's not stuck in any particular time in history. I think if we look at politics in the United States today, we'll see how power continues to corrupt. And what is the background there? How does that happen? The characters in Mahabharata are very absorbing. Um, Followers of the tradition, if you're a practitioner of bhakti yoga, of Krishna consciousness, then the story is seen as literal history, not an epic fantasy, but literal history. Now, the, the, the challenge here is defining literal. Literal on what level of reality? So there's a transcendent quality to this that is conveyed through realization. Not all wisdom is something you can just study and get. It's very often something that is bestowed upon us when we are qualified to receive it. So that dimension of Mahabharata, where now we're getting into the transcendental teachings and the Bhagavad Gita, those are things that reveal themselves to us the more we practice. So there are these two parallel tracks for understanding wisdom texts. One is the study, and the other is the praxis, or the putting into practical application, the ritual, if you will. There's the books, and then there's the chanting. There's the study of the life, and then there's the living of the life. And those two things have to go hand in hand. Just the philosophy, just the study, without the practice becomes dry and speculative. Just the ritual, without study, can become sentimental or in the extreme fanatical. And without the foundation of study and knowledge, a religious sentiment, a spiritual path, becomes a nice thing to do, but you can fall away from it. Because when the tough times come, there are always tough times on the spiritual path. If you don't have the philosophical background, where's the strength to continue? Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But if you've, if you've studied the text and you realize, well, wait a minute, there's no question of wanting or not wanting to do this. By nature, I'm an eternal spiritual soul. This is my eternal dharma. This is my nature. I can't possibly avoid this. So the study reinforces the practice, especially in those hard times. So, corruption of power. You know, the people who were responsible for all of the malfeasances of 2000 and then 2008 didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know what, today I'm going to be a bad guy. And I'm going to steal all of the retirement money out of the retirement fund and I'm going to spend it all and keep it for myself. That behavior is something that gets reinforced over time, usually going back to early life. So one of the things that we see in the Mahabharata is the importance of family and social structure and and growing up in an environment that reinforces that sense of a higher purpose to life. 
The heroes of this story, the Pandavas, were great warriors. And they were strict followers of the warrior code. But they didn't just wake up one day and decided, you know what, we're going to be good guy warriors. That was a, a, an understanding and appreciation for life's higher purpose that was inculcated from their very childhood. When they were young boys, the Pandavas had a teacher. His name was Dronacharya. And uh, when Lord Rama was a boy, he had two very important teachers in his life, Vishwakarma, uh, uh, Vasista, and Visvamitra. So he had teaching coming from two sides. One was a warrior, a former king, and the other a hermit in the woods. So there were those two influences in his life. I've just been writing about my teacher, Prabhupada, and how he learned from his guru, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati. Bhaktisiddhanta had two such similar, very different influences when he was growing up. His father, who was a great scholar devotee, and uh, his guru, who was a renunciant. He was a hermit, lived in an upside-down abandoned rowboat, ate his food from a skull, just to keep everybody away. You had one side, that renunciation, and the other side, great scholarship and devotion. So, so sometimes the, the training comes from different sides, and the heroes of the Mahabharata had those different kinds of influences as they were growing up. Um, another important theme of the Mahabharata is doing good, doing the right thing. Very, very hard. In fact, sometimes it's impossible. If, what we learn from these great stories in the, in the Sanskrit literature is how even for God, it's hard to do the right thing all the time. Because we have higher and lower dharmas. We, you know, we, we have these tensions that are pulling at us from all sides. Prabhupada, at some point, had to confront that in his life, where, on the one hand, he had the dharma of family and work and being responsible to his children and the people who depended on him. And then he had this mission given to him by his guru to bring Krishna consciousness to the West. And he had to make a decision. And that was not an easy decision to make. Lord Rama and the Ramayana has to decide which way to go in certain instances. If he's going to get the army that he needs to bring down the demon King Ravana, he needs the help of the monkey army. The monkey King says, what have you done for me lately? He says, I'll tell you what, help me bring down my monkey brother, and then I'll have an army for you. Ram Chandra, Ram, King Ram has to decide what to do. Do I engage in this and... How do I do this? I have to have this army if I'm going to rescue Sita. It's not always easy. So there's that conflict of duties. Um, and I guess most important of all for me in, in envisioning what to talk about today uh, before we screen this clip from uh, the Peter Brook um, enactment was um, that they really are family. They look out for one another. Uh, the Pandavas loved one another to the point where when they, through circumstances, ended up with one wife among them, uh, never at any time was there any sense of jealousy, of 
improper thoughts. The arrangement was that Draupadi would be with each of the brothers for one year. And uh, imagine the kind of trust that goes into that kind. I I suppose in one sense you could say it was an open marriage. But in this case, they were all together married as one family. What that takes, what's the reality underneath that? So either we take this as symbolic, metaphorical, or we accept them as real people. And if they're real people, then we have some confronting to do of our own relationships as well. I mean, what's the reality that binds us to our families? I ask myself that all the time. You know, I, I, I feel that tension. You know, that call to serve, to be a devotee, to be Krishna conscious. Right? And then on the other hand, I have responsibilities. So balancing that is a very, very difficult thing. The material and the spiritual. The worldly self and the otherworldly self. Right? The, the physical and the metaphysical. And how, how does it all work together? How do they, can they even fit together? Is it even possible? Well, not always, uh, as we learn from the story of the Mahabharata. So, um, here's the basic philosophy, and then we'll get to the screening. Um, according to the text of the Bhagavad Gita, all life is eternal sparks of God. Anything that we say lives, a flower, a mosquito, an animal, a tree, human beings, anything that lives and that demonstrates the the symptoms of life, growth, ingestion of nourishment, giving off of byproducts, aging, and eventually death. Those symptoms are indicative of the presence of an eternal soul, the atma, jiva atma sometimes called. That jiva atma is a spark from the fire of God with all of the same qualities as Krishna or God, but in minute quantity. Krishna is eternal, we are eternal. Krishna is fully self-aware, we are always also fully self-aware. Krishna is a blissful person. We are by nature blissful. The question then arises, if Krishna and the world of Krishna is so beautiful and perfect, why bother coming here? What's so great about the East Village? The best answer I ever heard to that question was from Prabhupada, who once described that, imagine a wealthy person who every day eats sumptuous food, private kitchen, private chef. One day that person goes to the chef and says, you know what, is it for a change today, can you make me some chip rice? Now, chip rice is what it sounds like. It's the broken hulls of rice that fall to the bottom of the sack and they're less expensive it's a poor person's meal but sometimes we want variety even if it means going to something simpler less expensive, less opulent variety is the spice of life at some point in cosmic time according to the Vedic theology some souls not all souls the souls within the material creation are not the majority of souls. Some souls get this idea in their head, I wonder what it would like to be living not with God, but like God. So basically this material world exists 
as a playground for us to act out our fantasies of living like God. Especially on Long Island. Everyone's got their McMansion and their fences and their three cars, you know, and their sculpted topiaries. <laughs> the more time we spend here, the more covered over our awareness of ourselves as divine beings grows. I park my car around the corner. If I leave it there for a week, I'll come back, it's, it'll be filthy. I won't have to do anything. Just dust and dirt and mud or whatever. Just by being there, it's going to get covered. So just by being in this material world, consciousness gets covered by the material energy. What is that covering? Technically, the Sanskrit word is maya, which means the state of forgetfulness of our original divine essence, our spiritual eternality, and thinking ourselves, identifying ourselves with what our senses can perceive both on a physical, emotional, cultural, intellectual, on all these different levels. Identifying with the life we can quantify is maya. The real self is the consciousness that animates this body and mind without which the body is useless and can do nothing. That's the kind of worldview that the Pandavas grew up with. Anyone growing up in the Vedic culture knows this. If you go to India, even the simplest person without any higher educational degrees knows, I'm not the body, I'm an eternal soul. It's part of the culture. So in this clip, which will run about 27 minutes, we meet Vyasa, who is credited with having brought the story of Mahabharata into written form. Uh, we meet a young boy who is kind of the every person through whom we, the audience, get to learn this story. Um, and the story picks up in this clip toward the end of the 12 years of exile. Now the backstory briefly, if you were not here last week, is that the bad guys in this epic story, the Kauravas, knew their cousins, the Pandavas, from childhood, but were raised by a father who was both congenitally and spiritually blind. Dhritarashtra did not know how to imbue in his sons a sense of respect and love for others. And so these sons grew up jealous, envious of their Pandava cousins who were better in military arts and they were beloved of everyone. The Kauravas were not just envious people, they were killers, they were murderers and they would stop at nothing to secure the kingdom for themselves. If their father had not been born physically blind the kingdom would have fallen to them but instead it fell to Dhritarashtra's younger brother, the father of the five Pandavas so those were the the genesis of their envy and hatred uh, originated At one point, they trick the Pandavas into a game of dice. The eldest of the five brothers, Yudhisthira, is um, tricked into a game of rigged dice, and he loses everything. His wealth, his kingdom, ultimately he loses his own family. And 
the final blow was that they were forced into exile for 12 years, after which time they had to remain incognito for one more year. And if they were found during that one year, they would again go ha- have to go back into exile for yet another 12 years. So this story picks up toward the end of the 12 years in exile when they have to go and live in disguise somewhere. So before that happens, they're all dying of thirst out there in the forest with no place to go to find water. And uh, they come to a lake and uh, Yudhisthira, who is the son of Dharmaraj, the son of the uh, Lord of Justice, if you will, um, must answer certain questions in order to revive his dead brothers who have drunk the poison water of this lake. And uh, then we meet Krishna, Vyasa and his scribe, Ganesh. The story there was that um, Vyasadeva was going to compile all this great Vedic wisdom into written form, and he asked Ganesh, the elephant-headed son of Shiva, to be his scribe. And um, Ganesh says, okay, I will be your scribe. Now correct me if I mix, mess this up. Provided you don't stop speaking. You keep speaking and I'll keep writing. So Vyasa is thinking and says, okay, I'll do that, provided you only write down what you have fully realized. And by doing that, he bought himself a little time along the way to gather his thoughts. So we meet Ganesh, who is Vyasa's scribe, and uh, they encounter Krishna, and they go to the kingdom of uh, King Varata, where they stay uh, in disguise, and uh, Yudhisthira ends up entertaining the king there. So the king doesn't know that they're the Pandavas. That's the big secret here. This is the payoff later. Yudhisthira decides that he'll be entertainment for the king's family. Naturally, what does he do? He plays dice. <laughs> uh, you'll see that he's learned a thing or two in the interim about playing dice. Um, Bhima, husky, big brother, uh, naturally is going to be the cook. So he'll be in the kitchen where he has access to all kinds of delectables. And um, their twin brothers are there. Draupadi, their wife, becomes a servant to the royal family. And Arjuna becomes a dance instructor, basically a eunuch who teaches Varata's daughters the art of dance. Now, there's always a backstory. One of the things we discussed last week is how the Mahabharata is stories within stories within stories within stories. So the backstory here is that Once upon a time in cosmic history, on the planet of Indra, the king of heaven, Arjuna, who was visiting, was approached by an apsara. Apsara is, if you will, a heavenly dancing maiden, a celestial maiden named Urvashi. And so she makes advances toward him, and Arjuna, who is very proper, in order to deflect her from any such thoughts calls her mother. <laughs> well, that was it. He rejects her advances and she curses him that because you have no virility, you will become a eunuch. These curses cannot, in the Vedic scheme of things, these curses have power, they have potency. So Indra tells Arjuna, don't worry about it. It's a curse that will serve you well 
when the time comes, then you have to go into exile. Last part of the clip, you will see Virata's army commander named Kichaka. Yes, Satyaraj. I just wanted to say, this Krishna plays on this in Bhagavad Gita. He says, don't be a eunuch. That's <laughs> right, yes. Because he's referring to this backstory. Yes. Um, Arjuna has that reference to look back to. So Krishna is kind of sticking it to him. You know, don't do that again. Don't be like that. Uh, Kichaka returns. Kichaka knows that there's great rewards if he finds the Pandavas where they're hiding. And uh, so he kind of suspects who are these five people who have now started working in the kingdom, but he doesn't figure out who they are. And becomes very enamored of Draupadi, this beautiful wife of the Pandavas. And he pays dearly for that, as you will see. Um, and then finally they reveal themselves to King Varata and the future is now clear there will be a battle there will be a war and Varata asks some say that we are on the verge of the age of Kali what do you think Yudhishthira and you will hear Yudhishthira's reply and uh, this is the beginning of the age of Kali the, the irony in this story is that even though technically the Pandavas win the war, uh, or they win the battle of Kurukshetra, they, win, they lose the war against the onset of Kali Yuga. And Yudhisthira's prophecies, I think you will hear resonance in what he describes in terms of uh, consumer culture and climate change and ecological disaster and Wall Street and acid rain and the end of time. So as, as you hear him in his soliloquy, um, I think you'll, you'll get an idea. So without further ado, let's play this um, clip from the Peter Brook and Jean-Claude Carrière staged adaptation of Maha Bharata. No, don't drink. Answer my questions before you drink. We must drink. Answer my question. Don't excite yourself for nothing. First, answer my question. Devoured by thirst. Questions. 
the living or the dead the living because the dead are no longer give me an example of space my two hands as one an example of grief ignorance of poison desire an example of defeat first day or night day but it was only a day ahead what is the cause of the world love what is your opposite myself what is madness a forgotten way and revolt why do men revolt to find beauty Either in life or in death. And what for each of us is inevitable? Happiness. And what is the greatest wonder? Each day death strikes. And we live as though we were immortal. This is the greatest wonder. Then the voice from the lake said... May all your brothers come back to life.
Why are you inventing this poem? So as to engrave dharma in the hearts of men. Is that possible? It will be long and difficult. It will be even dangerous. But the earth is listening to my poem. It's wondering, will he find a way to help me? Where are we going now? I don't know yet. Are you really the author of this poem? Do you doubt it? At times you hesitate. I've composed everything, but nothing is written down. And yes, there are moments when my thoughts escape me. And Krishna, did you invent him as well? Vyasa, which of us has invented the other? Krishna. Greetings. What are you looking for in this land? Vyasa, I was looking for you. I'm a little cold. Who are you? People say Vishnu has come down to save the world. And some say he has taken your shape. Is it true? What do you say, Vyasa, you who are narrating me? Haven't you already traced out my path? No path is traced completely, as well you know. You are in life, and you live. Days of my youth passed joyfully, and I tasted many wonders. Now your hairs go grey. Deep in myself I see a black lake. Often in the dark I hear calling and cries of pain. I hear them too. What do you do? At night I sleep, and in the morning... I wake. I wait. But you must know what is being prepared. One of you must know. Where are we? This is the court of King Virata. The five Pandava and their wife have been here for many months. Hiding, disguised. Look. Discreetly. That Brahmin there is Yudhishthira. He's playing dice? I've won. Yes. In the course of his journeys, he learned the science of dice. Now he can never lose. Oh, it's Bhima. Balhara is now the cook. They call him the Prince of Pots. The master of 4,000 sources. Over there is Nakula. Here with the musicians, Sahadeva. 
My general! My king! At last you are back. I can't run my country without you. Why have you been so long? I've been with Duryodhana. The Pandava have disappeared. He is furious. His spies have been searching the earth for them. But if I find them, it will give us gold. I think you should search in remote hamlets. Yes. In faraway mines. Yes. Caves. Grottoes. Ah. Yes. I will drag them down even if it takes me to China. Who are these men? My new servants. They serve Yudhishthira in the forest. Yudhishthira? Yes. Come! One, two, three, four, five. They are five, like the Pandava. This one is very strong. And this one. What have you got in your hand? A game of dice. Ah, play of dice. Oh, yes, very often. <laughs> so, tell me, you win or you lose? He wins every time. Then you can't be Yudhishthira. This <laughs> <laughs> is beauty. Ten. I don't know. She's just a servant. Beloved sister, send her to me. I must have her. I give you emeralds. Very good. I'll send her to you tomorrow. Are your servants? Yes. There is no one like you. You shine like the moon. 
Just the reverse. Come. Come into my fire. <gasps> Who do you think you are to say no to me? Hmm? Open your arms. Wait. Later. <laughs> Emma, stop cooking. Listen to me. Nobody? What are you doing here? I don't care anymore. I think all your brothers are dead. What do you mean? Your elder brother lives only for his dice. He once nourished the earth and today he eats from a stranger's hands. And you stewing rice in a kitchen. And Arjuna the great conqueror teaching dance to the king's daughter. I'm ashamed. This miserable dress, these chapped hands. I know some people are beginning to suspect us, but I am in agony. My heart is racing. Listen. Kichaka's violence terrifies me. I've promised to meet him again, but I would rather swallow poison than fall into his hands. Nobody. You know the new pavilion. Servants gasped. They said I was the king of beauty. Ah, <laughs> I'm happy. It's like a dream. I'm in ecstasy. Yes, yes, yes. Curse me. Yes. <laughs> ah, I see. You know the ancient art. Again. Again. Oh. <laughs> I've never been caressed so strongly. My whole body is tingling. <laughs> Speak to me. Tell me something. 
It's true you are the king. <laughs> It's true you are the king of beauty. No wonder women adore you. What's that voice? Certainly his clothes and his perfume. But where's his neck? Where are his feet? Where's his head? Who killed him? He's been killed by greed, by pride. But who turned him into a bull? Only a demon could do that. No, it was my brother. Who are you? I am Yudhishthira. I can't lie to you. And here is my brother Bhima, who killed Kichaka to protect our wife Draupadi. Here are Arjuna, Nakula and Sadeva. I have to close my eyes. Is it true? You have unearthed my palace in secret. What can I do for you? Our time of exile is over. We must now demand the return of what is ours. And if Duryodhana refuses? I will fight. You? Would you launch a war? Yes. With my brothers. You destira. They say that we have entered the age of destruction. Is it true? Don't go away without answering me. I see the coming of another age where barbaric kings rule over a vicious, broken world.
They're women, perfect whores, making love with greedy mouths. The cows dry sterile. The trees stunted lifeless. No more flowers, no more purity. Ambition, corruption, commerce. It's the age of Kali. The black time. The countryside. A desert. Crime stalks the cities. Beasts drink blood and sleep in the streets. All the waters sucked up by the sky. It's called it earth. Scorched to dead ash. The fire rises born by the wind. Fire pierces the earth. Cracks open the underground world. Wind and fire calcinate the world. Immense clouds gather. Blue, yellow and red. They rise like deep sea monsters. Like shattered cities. Forked with lightning, the rains fall. The rains fall and engulf the earth. Twelve years of storm. The mountains split the waters. I no longer see the world. Then... Primary God, when all that remains is a grey sea without man, beast, or tree. The Creator drinks the terrible wind and falls asleep. You said everything will be destroyed. So, what's the use of fighting? Quite a production, isn't that really something? And it's fairly minimal. I mean, if you look at the staging there, it's not you know a lot of special effects or anything. It's just um, extremely convincing, con compelling performances. Because why? What 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 makes this so effective for you? What what did you see here? If you found it at all compelling or effective, what what for you made it so? What sticks out for you in this? This is, by the way, only a half hour in a five-hour film. We'll see the last. We'll see something from the final part next week. Risha, I, I think the dialogue is very um, precise, very um, bad substance. Mm -hmm. Not, not mm -hmm. the same yeah. Dialogue. 
Wonderful. So scripting, uh, kind of an eclectic casting, mm-hmm. and uh, and effective uh, costumes. Right. Very good. Yeah. the uh, The script is by Jean Claude Carrière, who has done some marvelous film and theater and many books. Um, the the uh, Peter Brook Ensemble is intentionally a very international group, uh, and that is striking. I think, Satra, as you mentioned that, someone mentioned it earlier, it's a really quite a striking group of people. And the, uh, the costuming, I like your use of the word organic there. You know, it's not the predictable kind of, you know, military gear. There's something very much of, of the earth and very toothy about it. Yeah, Good. Other uh, other reflections on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the thing I kept thinking is um, I felt maybe because you know they were I think it began in a lake the clip we saw began in a lake mm-hmm. but I kept feeling we were somewhere tropical. Um, I felt like um, it, you know was, um, I keep thinking images of like tiki torches and bamboo leaves and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a feeling of uh, some kind of a, a, a warm and uh, humid place, and um, I don't know, it created, I guess, a, a feeling of, um, made me feel like India a little bit, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so those are things I just, uh, as, as I'm watching it, I kept uh, um, feeling an atmosphere of uh, something warm, something uh, natural. Okay, so convincing settings and staging and... Use of natural elements again. That's twice now. The use of natural ingredients, natural elements. Yeah, good. Anyone else? Yeah, share. Um, I was going to say that there was a um, a wonderful simplicity to their environment, the clothing, and everything. So it made it to me. It made it seem as though everybody was pretty much, you know, all human beings. Oh, okay. They all seemed to be yeah. navigating away from the mystery of life. Right. No one really had all the answers, but they were all looking for the answers. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I, I would I agree with all of your comments. Share yours. I think is particularly um, significant. Um, Peter Brook and Jean Claude Carrier have chosen not to get wrapped up in the enormity of kingdoms and palaces and gold and. And, you know, something that would require hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. This film was shot in under 90 days. Okay, just to give an idea. The whole thing, start to finish, 90 days. And because they've avoided all of that um, emphasis on special effects and, and, and expensive environments and a lot of CG graphics or whatever, you really do focus on the people as living, breathing human beings. What about Krishna? Was he uh, believable for you? What, what was your response to seeing Krishna there? Satyarash. I was wondering uh, how much 
liberty that they take with the Mahabharata text because when Vyasa is a Krishna, you're, you're your hair's getting gray. gray. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the Mahabharata. No, no, Krishna's hair never turned gray. <laughs> now, there, there's liberty. So this is more about Peter Brook than Vyasa Dave and the original Mahabharata. I mean, that, that's for sure. You're seeing a Peter Brook stage production. But uh, I think in the hands of a less gifted director or a less gifted uh, centerist than Jean-Claude Carrière, this could have easily tipped over into farce and caricature. Very, very easily gone into something quite melodramatic and kitschy and unbelievable. But there was something really quite compelling about people who seemed to know one another. And I agree with you that they, they seem to have been on a serious quest. They're really looking for something here. They're, they're, they're trying to arrive at some kind of an understanding of their place in the world, their place in the universe, especially at this very problematic time. I mean, my gosh, Yudhisthira's description of the coming of the Age of Kali is right out of, is it 11th canto or 12th canto? 12th canto, Srimad Bhagavatam. All of these symptoms are described there in great detail that people will be physically shorter. I mean, this is the prophecy of a text that dates back thousands of years. And at the current time, the age we know, physical stature will be shorter, duration of life will be shorter, compassion Mercy will be in scarce supply. Um, people will have um, um, much less ability to retain knowledge. So books are necessary. Prior to the age of Kali, things were heard once and retained. We need to go over them again and again and again. Uh, I don't remember some of the other symptoms of Kali. Yeah. Uh, but it, it... When you explains all of that, and then the question at the end is, then why fight the war? Ah. Where does that go? Does he answer that? Well, no, he didn't, did he? We're off to the next chapter in the film. Now, that's called a cliffhanger. <laughs> you know? And we, those of you who were here last week, you'll recall that in the introduction to the printed book of the script of uh, this version of the story, um, Peter Brook describes that, you know, it's in Jean-Claude Carrier's introduction, they both contribute something to this book. He says that, first of all, we didn't think that we were qualified to enter into the grand spiritual truths. That, that much we did not presume in our understanding of Mahabharata. We were seeking um, theatrical truth. Theatrical truth, as Brooke describes it, is silence. When an audience is confronted by the experience on the stage, this confrontation between the actors and the audience through the medium of a play, where the silence is not the silence of, oh, I'm sitting here watching a play, but the silence of, I'm not watching a play, I'm involved in this. I'm a part of this, and it is real. That kind of silence in the sense of awe. So their attempt was not to define Krishna in scriptural fidelity to what's there in the Mahabharata of Vyasa, but to attempt to arrive at some place where the questions were articulated in a way that the audience would be involved in them. And I think in that sense, they, they've succeeded quite admirably. And that raises perhaps the, the one takeaway that we can um, uh, all share this evening which is that we're also involved in this, aren't we? 
You know, if, if the message of Mahabharata is that things are headed in this, in this direction of destruction. Now, if we look at the world today, it's not a pretty picture. And that's literally what we're looking at here, a very ugly picture of the, the direction of humanity. Right? And the question arises, can we do anything about it? Is it within our power to actually be a part of that reversal of the age of Kali? And those of us who had the privilege of knowing Prabhupada when he was here uh, will recall his response to that, which is that if you become Krishna conscious, and if enough of us take to the path of devotion, we can reverse the trend in the age of Kali Yuga. So that nuclear disaster and total devastation and so on is not inevitable. It's the way things are going but it is not inevitable. That is actually within our ability to move this dark age into a very different direction and toward, toward the light. So, how's that for a send-off and something to chew on on your way home this evening? So, thank you very, very much. I'll hang out if there's anyone who wants to talk a little bit more about this wonderful production. But uh, thus ends part two of our three-part series of Mahabharata. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you.